You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunnett. That's right. You got it locked to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast, where we've got plenty to talk about this week as we plunge into the thick of the MMA schedule for 2013. We're fresh off UFC 157 from last Saturday, and another UFC on Fuel show looms this weekend, and... As usual, more Bellator. Always more Always. Bellator. It just keeps coming. Just like grass. You can't stop Bellator. Uh, <laughs> just Bellator is just like grass. Yeah. Ben Folks. By the way, that's copyrighted, Bellator. Okay. Yeah. Don't well, you try and steal that one. Don't, don't think about trying to lay your mitts on that. My lawyer, Bjorn. also known as Chad's wife, will come after you when she gets some free time. I'm Chad Dennis from ESPN.com, and joining us, as always, the other voice you hear on the Co-Main Event Podcast, your friend and mine, Ben Folks from MMA Junkie and USA Today. Ben, I started out the uh, the show talking about how we are now sort of plunging headlong into what, what promises to be a... MMA horrific 2013. We're in the shit. Did so, you say that? Yeah, we're, we're in the tall grass. Yeah. We're knee deep in the shit. Uh-huh. We're up to our balls in it. <laughs> uh, I was going to ask you, you know, during 2012, we and and myself particularly were a little, we were hard on the UFC for its sort of re- relentless schedule and how we thought they did too many shows. And I have to say, I've been meaning to say this on the podcast the last couple of weeks. I know that it's early. We're just started into 2013. But I actually feel a little bit more upbeat about the schedule so far this year. And maybe that's because we haven't had any sort of crippling injuries that have caused anything to to really get screwed up. Uh, and uh, do you feel the same? Do you feel a little bit more positive? I do. And uh, well, I'm coming off UFC 157, which was a lot of fun. Had some awesome fights on it. I mean, the very first fight... Like the damn Facebook fight to kick off the show. The curtain jerker at 3.30 in the afternoon was a hell of a fight. That's when you knew we were in for probably it was going to be a pretty good night. I do think you're right that we got so used to injuries uh, upon injuries and then replacements replacing other replacements that maybe we looked a little too negatively at last year's schedule without remembering, hey, this was nobody's first choice a lot of the times. Right. Uh, and now when we get to see some fight cards where it is the first choice it is plan a put out there you realize pretty awesome pretty awesome that everybody can just stay healthy yeah stop you know injecting testosterone into the eyeballs for five damn minutes and and let's just do the damn thing maybe we'd be all right yeah i'm trying to keep an open mind we'll see how it goes as we i know you're skeptical trundle i'm continue to be skeptical but i'm trying to take i'm trying to focus on the positives for this year's schedule as usual, this week, the co-main event podcast comes to you in three rounds. In round number one, I don't know why anybody would be surprised at this point, but the first female main event in the UFC went fine, just fine this past weekend. So is it full speed ahead for women in the octagon? And in round number two, the way forward might be somewhat less clear-cut in the men's light heavyweight division, where Leota Machida and Dan Henderson couldn't be bothered to show up for work at UFC 157. And in round number three, no one is safe anymore. The UFC is chopping heads. Protect your neck, son. Surprising heads. And a lot more heads are yet to roll, as we've been told. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time... It's listener mail. Listener mail. The first listener mail question this week comes to us from Justin Latavala. Do you think that's close? Latavala? Are you inserting an A in there or is that in there? In between the T and the V sounds? No, it's L-A-T-V-A-L-A. Latvala. Okay. Isn't it? I don't know. Maybe I copied it down wrong. Justice Latvala. That's what we're going with. (laughs) Fine. Did King Mo take a dive? Or maybe he had a stroke. (laughs) That back fist didn't seem to land that hard, and he was keeping his left hand very low all the time through the fight, like an invitation to get knocked out. What do you guys think about MMA and betting in general? Are there fixed fights in MMA? Uh, Well, I will just begin our answer to this by saying, no, King Mo did not take a dive unless you count the slow motion face plant. A literal dive. Yeah, he did a, a, a literal dive onto his face after suffering that spinning back fist, but... I don't think anyone is accusing King Mo of, of throwing that fight. 
No, if you're and you know, MMA lends itself to taking a dive in a lot of ways, way yeah. easier than boxing. If you're going to take a dive, you know, you give up a, a, a bullshit heel hook or something. You you don't, you don't get knocked out. You, you don't get knocked unconscious if you want to take a wait, dive. Wait, hold, hold on. You just cover, wait a you do second. A Gary Goodridge, and you just cover up and and wait for the referee to get in there. When you said. Give up a bullshit heel hook. Uh-huh. Was that a shot at Mark Coleman? Why? Why would you say that? <laughs> I, I mean, there's hey, a, if you if you want to read into it, I guess that's your choice, Chad. I guess it is my choice. Yeah, you know, one of the things about since we, I feel like we're always harping on fighter pay and how much guys you know make to go out there and and essentially risk their lives in MMA fights. But one of the reasons I, I feel like one of the real positive reasons that that we can look to to why guys should get paid a lot more is because if you are, say, Manny Pacquiao, and you're getting paid, like, what, uh, 20... Uh, $11 billion. Gazillion, yeah. $28 squillion to fight some guy. It's really, really bucks. hard for some gangster to come to you and make it, you know, uh, economically viable for you to want to yeah. take a dive. Whereas, no, he's got to kidnap if you're kids. some dude on the... the FX prelims of an MMA show where you stand to make five and five thousand. I hope <laughs> uh, it's a lot easier for some guy to come to you and say, "Hey, man, how about if I give you this extra ten G's? Would you consider, you know, going out there and laying down, giving up a bullshit heel hook, as Ben Folks might say?" Yeah. Well, and you know, the uh, first of all about King Mo, uh, that one, I think talking about him fighting with his left hand down low, like an invitation to get knocked out. I think that's that's overconfidence, especially right. in his stand-up game. And we've seen this before with a lot of wrestlers who they're great wrestlers, uh, and then they get introduced to the striking. And once they start to feel comfortable enough with it, uh, then they always want to show off that aspect of their game. You know, they've been working on it really hard, so they want to get out there and they want to do it. Uh, and we saw in Mo's first fight in Bellator he had that walk-off KO. So he got to feeling probably a little too good about his stand-up skills. Uh, maybe didn't respect uh, Manuel Newton's power enough. I think what happened, it did not look like a you know a super hard spinning back fist, but he never saw it. Yeah, it just, it was a sneaky one, you know, and it just kind of got in there at the end of the exchange, and it, it was so sneaky, and he 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 didn't see it so much that even after it hit him, it took a second. It was like somebody had turned the power off on a robot, and there was that moment where it's still standing, going. And then it falls over. Like, that's what happened. Uh, I think, you know, it, it wasn't the power of the strike so much. It's just that when, you know, the, the one you don't see, that's the one that, that really hurts you. I think that's what happened there. But I do think, and I also think uh, we're within our bounds to be concerned about Dana White's prodigious gambling at times. Uh, he mentioned on Joe Rogan's uh, podcast, I think, last week that he had lost a million dollars in a night before and then kind of got into it on but Twitter. But has won six million. <laughs> there you which, go. hey, man, if you go out playing blackjack <laughs> one night and you win six million dollars, I can see how you might want to do that again some other time. <laughs> like, you might be like, this was an enjoyable experience. <laughs> really? I mean... We, Dana White and I must have very different mentalities because somehow if I had won $6 million in one night of blackjack, I would never play blackjack again because I'm walking away with $6 million goddamn dollars. Right, right. Well, no, clearly we are coming to this from two different budget situations <laughs> right. because I well, cannot even afford to play blackjack at any of the like $10 tables or yeah. whatever. No, you were over there at the dollar casino war tables. Yeah. Uh, just I'm, basically going I'm high out card. The, I'm out at the Boulder station, you know, <laughs> but continuing you know, to patronize the Fertitas, by the way. Uh, Dana got into it with, with Mike Chapetta and then defended, defended his stance at the fan Q&A on Friday saying, hey, uh, it's none of Mike Chapetta's business how I spend my money. Uh, well, I mean, it's not until you say it on a podcast. Yeah, it's not. At like, which point it becomes everyone's yeah, business. Chapetta's not digging through your trash looking for bank records. I mean, you, you're you're bragging about your gambling wins and losses uh, in public view. So, and at the UFC president, you are kind of our business. And again, like, hey, yeah, he can do whatever he wants with his money. Want to buy a saber tooth tiger skull? Fine, <laughs> buy yourself a saber tooth tiger skull. You know. You can do whatever you want with your money. However, there is uh, a legitimate concern that can be raised about the president of a professional fighting organization uh, if, you know, say he develops a crippling gambling problem. Sure. I'm not saying that's what's happening with Dana White. <laughs> I mean, hey, if he's losing a million and winning six million, he seems to be doing all right. But he's got I mean, a system, I bet. <laughs> I'm sure he does have a system, much like your video Kino thing. Uh, but you can see how that could lend itself to problems. Uh, if the guy in charge of, of pulling the strings for the world's biggest MMA organization, you know, got into some gambling trouble. 
Second question this week comes from Juka Huatari. Oh, come on. You got to be kidding me. Did you? <laughs> this seems like a question sent in by Ben Folks just to fuck with me. Because when you, everyone knows when you ask the questions, you get questions from like John Smith and Robert Chapman. <laughs> hey, man. You know, it's just, just the way it goes sometimes. Anyway, question from Juka Huatari, who writes in, what is your prediction for who will be the last man standing on the UFC roster from the original first season of The Ultimate Fighter? Forrest Griffin, Diego Sanchez, Josh Koscheck, Mike Swick, or Chris Lieben? Now, this, I like this question. This is an yeah, interesting question. It's tough when you think about it. What do we mean by last man standing? I think like last guy to, to be an active member of the roster who has not either retired or, or have been cut would be my... So last what man I would standing surmise. in the UFC. Yeah, basically. on the UFC roster. Huh. That is tough. Uh, I mean, Stefan Bonner's out. Right, I think right, we can right, safely right. say Bobby Southworth. I don't know if he's making a comeback. Yeah. Chris Sanford. Wait, was that the season one or season two? I don't, I don't remember. remember. Uh, well, I mean, it's an interesting question because Forrest Griffin obviously could retire at any time. I don't think that, that that's a, a surprise to anybody. Could and uh, perhaps should. Koscheck is coming now, coming off that loss to Robbie Lawler from the weekend. And, and his record over the last three, four years, not that impressive. He has the win over Matt Hughes. And uh, what's his other win? He has a... a I don't remember. I would have to look it up. Yeah, I don't remember either. Uh, Mike Swick, obviously, constantly injured. Um, well, he's he's getting off the constantly injured thing now, and he came back. He knocked out Demarcus Johnson, but then got knocked out by by Matt Brown. But he seems like general, generally healthier now. Uh, by the way, Mike Pierce. Oh right, yeah. Josh Koscheck. It's a split, it's a split decision win over Mike yeah. Pierce. Um, and then you know Chris Lieben obviously seems to be a guy who has already had his nine lives on the roster, I guess you would say, and, and is, is recently coming in off the loss uh, also. So um, I'm going to say, and I would not have thought, if, you know, I, wouldn't, I probably would not have thought that this was going to be my answer, but I think my answer is going to be Diego Sanchez because he is on the verge now of making his an additional comeback. Another guy who's been sort of hampered by injuries lately is Diego Sanchez, uh, and he is returning now this weekend, actually, back to the lightweight division from welterweight, and he's going to fight Takanori Gomi at uh, this UFC on Fuel event from the Saitama Super Arena this Saturday. So depending on how that goes, I guess. Uh, you know, Diego Sanchez at light, lightweight, I think, is, uh, is uh, an, interesting, an interesting proposition. We'll have to see how it goes, but I think his only lightweight loss is to BJ Penn. You know, I I don't know if Diego Sanchez is going to be the last man standing because he has taken a mountain of damage true. in some that, of those well, that fights. True, that is true, yeah. You know, like that fight, somehow he won the decision in that Martin Campman fight, but good God, did you see him afterwards? I mean, that's the kind of stuff I think, even if you're just a, a crazed berserker, as Diego Sanchez clearly is, that stuff can take some years off your career, especially when... You know, you have a penchant to get into those kind of fights, which he does. I'm going to say okay, Mike Quick-Swick. Okay, yeah. Well, that's definitely sort of a homer pick for you. Mike Look, Swick has been your guy for a while now. I like Mike Swick. Mike Swick's a good dude, good fighter. Uh, I also think he has that mix of, uh, you know, he's a, an exciting fighter so that the UFC is not going to be, you know, looking for an excuse to John Fitch him at some point. Uh, but he's not, he's exciting, but without being reckless. Uh I mean, yeah, he did get knocked out by Matt Brown, but I think uh, he has a good mix of putting on those kind of fun fights, but without just charging into damage needlessly. He still manages to fight smart as long as, you know, I think the biggest risk to him uh, not being the last man standing is not that he physically wouldn't be able to do it, but he is one of those guys that we might dub uh, too reasonable to be a fighter at times. I would think the bigger danger would be him just being like, man, I don't need this shit anymore and walking away to, to tend to some of his outside business interests and deciding maybe he doesn't need to be getting punched in the face into his late 30s. Um, you know, which I would never say was a bad idea if anybody sure. started feeling that way. But that's, that's my money, Mike Swick. All right, so I'm going Diego Sanchez. You're going Mike Swick. Third question this week comes to us from Ryan G. See, I don't have a problem with that one. Ryan G, I can say that. 
Is it just G, the just the letter as yeah. the last initial? Yes, yeah. I assume that's his rap name. It's probably Giannokoulos or something, and he's trying to make it easy on you. According to Dana White, Jose Aldo has come out and said he is refusing to fight Anthony Pettis. A lot of people are angry at Aldo, but I think he deserves some praise. I am sick and tired of seeing undeserving fighters get title shots. Frankie, I assume he means Frankie Edgar, went 0-2 and gets an immediate title shot. Chael, I assume he means Chael Sonnen here, uh, gets TKO'd by Anderson. I assume he means Anderson. Come on, okay. damn it. Anderson and gets a title shot against Jones. <laughs> <laughs> don't, need, don't look at me. Nick Diaz loses to Condit and gets a title shot anyways. I understand Pettis has won fights, but they're at lightweight. Pettis should work his way up the featherweight ladder, just like Lamas and the Korean Zombie have. Where do you guys stand on this issue? Do you think that Jose Aldo deserves some praise for calling out undeserving title shots? You know, where was... Hey, uh, Jose Aldo's hardline stance on that when it came to Frankie Edgar? That's my question. Yeah, I don't know. Good question. I, it's, it's hard for me to believe that his refusal to fight Pettis is based entirely on, you know, hey, he he hasn't earned it. Because the dude has has definitely earned number one contender spot at lightweight. I think there's there's no disagreement about that, that if he wanted to wait and see how uh, Benson Henderson and Gilbert Melendez plays out, he would be the obvious next title challenger. I think if you've earned that shot at lightweight and if you can make it down to featherweight, then you have a pretty good argument for saying that, you know, hey, you basically earned the shot at a lower weight class as well. It would be different if you were going up a weight class instead of down, I think. Um, So I don't have a problem with that. I think especially from a practical standpoint, man, Jose Aldo, this is a bad idea. Don't you should. I mean, I don't know if you saw the video, but I heard. Wait, you think the bad idea is him turning down the fight, yeah. refusing to take, the or just fight? being difficult about From it? From a political situ- uh, yes. stance, yeah, it's a bad idea. The tone in Dana White's voice when he was talking about this in the media scrum, and you know, kind of couldn't wait to unload on Jose Aldo, and you know, to feed the media that information and let us run with it. Basically, I'm not going to call Jose Aldo a pussy, but I am going to give you guys the ammunition to do it if you would like to, kind of thing. So, man, I bad career move, I think. Yeah, but that's one of the things that we find distasteful about the UFC, right? Like, I feel if a guy, especially if he's the champion and he's somewhat in charge of his own career, should not necessarily be able to pick and choose every fight that he has, but but to to look at one and say, hey, this guy's never even had a fight at featherweight before. I'd rather take on a featherweight contender like Lamas, so to you know, for for example. I feel like he's well within his rights to do that. And so I, one of the things that I disagree with the UFC power structure on is is this sort of like vindictive nature that they at least seem to. Uh, to to I mean that's how it looks from the outside looking in I mean whether or not they're actually vindictive who knows but I mean it, it certainly looks that way whenever you see quotes like this from Dana White like insinuating that that <laughs> you know or the thing he said about Joe Silva this past week also where it's like don't turn down a fight that Joe Silva offers you or Joe Silva will make your life a living hell essentially yeah probably said. probably should best not to say that uh, to the media but I think you know in theory you're right. Uh, about that the champion should be able to not pick and choose his fights, but you know make a case that, hey, the dude should have to earn it. But when you just came off that fight with Frank Yedger, you kind of lose a little bit of uh, your capital in, in that regard, I think. You had no problem fighting that dude uh, who hadn't fought at featherweight. It seems like you're looking around saying, I don't know, this one seems kind of tough. Yeah. I think, and also... Well, yeah, that's a valid point, I think. I, I, I also would think that from Jose Aldo's perspective, if he's going to be defending his title on a pay-per-view, you know, and if he's a champion getting points on the pay-per-view, then I would think Jose Aldo, Ricardo Lamas, that's not going to sell a whole bunch of pay-per-views, man. That's not going to be a big money fight for you if you're Jose Aldo. Against Anthony Pettis, that's a bigger fight. Wait, let let Lamas fight the Korean Zombie. Uh, the winner of that then obviously ha- has uh, earned a, a featherweight title shot, and then there's a, a little more interest in it. I, I just think from both a business perspective and from a don't piss off the UFC slash look bad to the fans perspective, this is a bad move. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, let's squeeze one more in here from Eddie, who writes and asks, my question is about nicknames. I believe some words don't quite sound right when sandwiched in between a person's name. Take, for instance, LeVar Big Johnson. It just <laughs> creeps me out when I hear Mike Goldberg screaming it into a microphone. Also, nicknames are to be given to people by someone they know, so it makes me wonder, who gave them his nickname? A friend? A neighbor? His girlfriend? I tend to lean towards the latter, but I would like to enjoy my night thinking of more important things than this. So do you think LeVar Johnson's nickname is too inappropriate? 
I don't know if it's too inappropriate, but I hate the nickname that's just a play on your name somehow. Yeah, you know, well, I and I like hate Rick the horror story. Right. Come I, on. I hate the names that make your nickname sound like uh, an apparel company from the '90s. Right, Big Johnson. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I'd forgotten about that. Uh, that's what how. I'm here for. Yeah. Or just the you know the nickname. If we can't use your nickname, if we couldn't just say your nickname and have people know who we're talking about, like without any other parts of your name, no one could just say, Big is fighting this weekend. You know? Yeah. You can't do that. You could say Rampage is fighting this weekend, Shogun's fighting this weekend. You know, the, that those are some good nicknames. It also would just like, you know, the guys who have like rhyming nicknames, like something that just rhymes with your last name, like... I don't know if that dude came up with it himself or if it's his teammates to blame, but come on, let's have a nickname that's actually that says something about the person, and not that that the person might have a big penis. I don't. <laughs> well, and Lavar Johnson's nickname is sort of a throwback to the fun-loving days when he used to beat up nobodies and then drink a beer in the cage back when he was in the old school WEC when they used to fight in like the Pentagon-shaped cage in uh, in Lemoore, California. When back when Reed Harris was was the owner and was running the show before they sold to the UFC, and sort of a, a a different world from the Levar Johnson we have today, who's the inspirational athlete of the decade for returning from multiple gunshot wounds, but also may not be the greatest heavyweight talent you've seen out there. What do you so, mean? You don't think you don't think that uh, Levar Johnson is going to be the next heavyweight champ? No, I don't know. I mean, I don't. I don't. Far be it from me to rain on a guy's dream. So let's just leave it at that. Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, concern that you want to air to the podcast, you can get a hold of us by going to our website, comaineventpodcast.com, and clicking the link at the top right-hand corner of the page that says email the podcast. As for right now, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Most accounts. The UFC's first ever women's bantamweight championship fight went about as well as could be expected, maybe even better, since the fleeting moments of offense that we got from Liz Carmouche uh, effectively really only added up to make things a lot more fun. I know you were there live. I was. What were your impressions here? Yeah, I thought that when you think about it, all the things that could have gone wrong or, you know, that just could have been weird about it and there's really no way they could have scripted this any better because right. you get to see a little bit of a of a danger to Ronda Rousey, just enough of a, a wobble on the tightrope to remind us that you know crazy stuff can happen here. And yet she still gets the first round armbar finish, still gets to maintain that mystique. Her sports bra doesn't quite fall off. Not quite. Yeah. Nobody nobody has an exploding cauliflower ear or blood pouring all over the place to freak out the people who are just tuning into this cage fighting stuff for the first time. Uh, you know, the crowd seemed like uh, it, it was in the same building as the Cain Velasquez-Brock Lesnar fight, uh, and it seemed, the energy seemed comparable to me, huh. uh, which was surprising. Interesting, all right. Yeah. and So, I mean, I think the big thing about this is that it probably brought in a lot of, uh, a new segment uh, of the population that either doesn't watch this or doesn't really follow it that closely and they'd heard enough about Ronda Rousey because of all her media exposure, were curious, and maybe they liked, maybe you come for Ronda Rousey and you stay for Robbie Lawler. You know, who knows? Before we go any further, let's just make the, the brief point that if you're the UFC and you're going to be sponsoring select female fighters, if you're going to be sponsoring your 135-pound champion and she's going to be wearing your apparel during the fight, it probably would be a good idea to provide Ronda Rousey with a more functional sports bra yeah because we did come fairly close to having a wardrobe malfunction and i think one of the few things that could overshadow what a you know pretty awesome fight we ended up with would be if the next day everybody on the internet was only talking about ronda rousey's boobs flying out yeah yeah, no, that would be a problem. And, I mean, do you think that did, – did she get a chance to train in this sports bra at all? Did she get a chance to put that on and spar? I mean, maybe not. Like, it's since it's UFC apparel, maybe she just showed up at the at the thing and they were like, hey, here's your here's your gear, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe think that one through a little better next time. The thing that struck me about the few moments there where it looked like Liz Carmouche might potentially crack Ronda Rousey's face in half, aside from the fact that probably most of the UFC brass was being like, no, not the face, <laughs> anything but the face, uh, was, you know, as we've been saying for, I feel like, weeks and weeks, bad idea to base your uh, entire division around one person. Because that's how quick it can change. Yeah. Like, that's how quick you can get dethroned and it's all over. And I would hope that the takeaway from that exchange, especially for the UFC, is, and I'm hopeful that it might be, because it seemed like Dana White was pretty complimentary of the job that Liz Carmouche did in the fight. I hope that the takeaway is, hey, Ronda Rousey was the biggest star in the cage on Saturday night, but maybe she wasn't the only star. And maybe there are other women out there worthy of UFC investment and worthy of the idea that we need to create a, a, you know, a, a real and vibrant division. You know, I keep waiting for the UFC to, to pivot in that direction. Uh, and it seems like there are a bunch of opportunities, but they're not really doing it because at the post-fight press conference, there was a moment where somebody, you know, gave Dana White the kind of thing he usually will take and run with uh, as an opportunity to promote the next fight when, they asked, hey, you know, that Misha Tate-Kat Zingano fight that's booked for April for the Ultimate Fighter finale, I believe, uh, is the winner of that going to be the next challenger for Ronda Rousey? And it was like the perfect one where Dana White would usually take that and be like, go off about, yeah, the winner of that fight is a beast and you can't deny their shot. You know, like laying the groundwork. And instead, all he said was, that would make sense. And then moved on. And yeah, I was like, he what? does, you know... A lot of times he does hate to talk about that kind of thing at the post-fight press conference yeah. because, you know, as I think we'll talk about in round two, sometimes it does indeed behoove the UFC to take a wait-and-see attitude about who they're going to be giving their title shots to. Right, but I, I think that especially with that division, because it's still so new, and because I would think the UFC should be hypersensitive trying to avoid the perception that they just want to be in the Ronda Rousey business. Yeah. Uh, because you I can mean, they've been that... shockingly kind of bold-faced about it up to right. this point. And that's a problem, not only because, like you said, you know, somebody wraps their forearm around your face and you never know where that's going to lead, but also because uh, you just don't, you, you can't build a division that way you, if everybody thinks that you're just about one fighter, because then why do they care to see two other contenders in the division fight if it seems like you don't care? You know, the, the promotion needs to kind of lead the way on that stuff. Right. And I think that there's plenty of opportunity. And one of the things was Dana White said at the fan Q&A when he was asked, hey, are you, are you going to do 145 at some point? And he said, you know, we, we're still trying to work on getting 135 where it needs to be. Uh, and he said, we've got 10 fighters now, and we're going to get up to 15 in that division. And at first, we all kind of thought it was weird because we'd only heard of six. You know, right. they announced several more people today, though, right? Julie Kedzie's in, and Sarah Kaufman is in. By announced, uh, it was tweeted by AJ Perez from from Fox Sports that they're that they're in. I saw Julie Kedzie and Sarah Kaufman uh, at the fights, and I went up to Julie Kedzie and asked, "So, are, are you signed? Is that is that true?" And she was kind of like, "I guess, I guess I am." Uh, it wasn't, you know, she definitely didn't get taken to Mister Chow. Let's <laughs> let's say that. Yeah, and it wasn't like, well, it is weird how often that happens, like. It sure seemed last Wednesday that Ulysses Gomez found out that he had been cut from the UFC when he saw Ariel Helwani tweet about yeah, it. So. Yeah, and that was Dana White was actually apologizing for that. Uh, but I think what happened, uh, talking to some people from the UFC afterwards, was that they had these contracts through their Strikeforce purchase. Yeah, now that Strikeforce like. is gone, that they just kind of already had them. And so it wasn't like they added these fighters. They already had them, but they haven't been really announcing them because they don't have fights for them. And that's the thing. When Dana White talks about how there are 100, fights, 100 fighters over where they want to be on the roster, and then you're trying to also build a new division, uh, I mean, they're booked basically for months in advance. Like, if you're trying to get a, a fight in a brand new division, it's like you start you start talking about midsummer basically, and you go from there. Yeah. Like, it, there's just not a whole lot of space on these fight cards. Uh, so it's probably going to be a slow process building this up. Yeah, and, and you know, you just brought up 145, and so I, we should probably talk a little bit about uh, Cyborg Santos being at, in, in the house. Oh, she was up in the house. At the Honda Center. With manager Tito Ortiz. And, uh, and Jenna Jameson, of course. <laughs> naturally, yes. Um, and actually, honestly, so, you know, you just talked about Dana's response when somebody asked him the question, are you guys going to have a 145-pound division? 
But to me, honestly, after watching the success of this 135-pound uh, fight over the weekend and to think, you know, if they're only going to sign 15 135-pound women and they've already sort of established that they're taking kind of a wait-and-see approach with where it seems like the division may well just be Ronda Rousey and whoever we're bringing in for her to fight. Like, why not do that at 145? Why not bring Cyborg into the fold and as long as you can make sure that she's clean, uh, install her as your women's, uh, I guess, featherweight champion and have two divisions and then eventually try to move toward a super fight. I guess one of the reasons why you might not do it is that you don't need to right now. You can the leverage is on the UFC side, yeah, and this is something. Is. I, well, we were talking to Tito, you know, after the event. I was waiting for the press conference to start, and I kind of turned a corner backstage, and then there's Tito standing there with a the cyborg, uh, giving an interview in the hallway. And at first, it was like. How do you get back here? <laughs> what is the UFC going to say about it? But they seemed okay. They kind of ushered him into one of the media rooms so he wasn't blocking out the hallway. But John Morgan and I talked to him, and I'm, I'm going to have something on, on Tuesday about kind of our conversation. Uh, and, you know, he was kind of laying out his plan for Cyborg that she's going to go over to Invicta. She's going to be the champion there. She's going to fight three times. And then he wants to do, a, you know, a New Year's Eve bout at, at 140. Um, and I kind of tried to bring up to him, you're assuming an awful lot is going yeah, to go your way here. The word I would use to describe that plan is risky. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, ambitious. Yeah. Yeah, just taking a lot for granted. One, that Cyborg's going to keep winning. You know, anybody anybody can lose in this sport. Uh, another is that Invicta is going to be able to keep finding her fights on a consistent, le- on a consistent level. Another is that Ronda Rousey is going to keep winning. Because, yeah. dude... If Misha Tate gets in there and beats her, or you know somebody else uh, gets in there, you know Sarah McMahon uh, mm-hmm. has a fight booked. Maybe Sarah McMahon wins and then gets a, a shot at Ronda Rousey, and she beats her. Then there you go. You know you lost a chance to to make a ton of money there. Um, you know then what? Like there's a, just yeah. a lot of things that can go wrong with that plan, and you're just kind of a like I, I wanted to know. Like I mean, man, for a guy who's been in this business this long, how do you not know that this stuff is very possible? That any one of these things could go wrong for you. Yeah. To me, the mere fact that they were there, though, backstage at the UFC and doing interviews in a media room is the clear indication that this fight is not as dead as we thought it was several days prior to that, because people don't get back there by accident and they certainly don't get ushered into a media room. I mean, you didn't see Randy Couture back there. Randy Couture can't buy a ticket to one of these motherfuckers from what we heard. John Fitch wasn't wasn't doing (laughs) interviews in no media room this past weekend. I think the UFC realizes that eventually if both Cyborg and Rousey continue on their current trajectories, that that's the fight. Yeah. You know, that's going to be the big money fight that's going to happen eventually. And it is. And Rousey needs a foil, frankly. She does. If they're going to try to build her into a long-term star, she needs someone out there or someone, you know, preferably somebody who works for the company that she fights for and is in her division who people can look to and be like, this is the person, this is the person who's going to either – beat Rousey or push Rousey or be the litmus test to tell us how seriously we should be taking Rousey as this long-term star. Yeah, and I don't think that, you know, I think that it's more of a negotiating ploy when Dana White says, hey, uh, uh, Cyborg has missed the boat here. Right. Uh, And, you know, I don't think the door is completely closed there, especially I think that's one of the reasons why they wanted to go to Invicta and not some company that does not have a working relationship with the UFC. Because Invicta seems like it's got it figured out so that it knows, hey, if the UFC calls and says we need to take one of the fighters off your card, then that's what's going to happen. I mean, Sarah Kaufman has a fight in Invicta in April, and uh, when I was talking to her about her, her contract situation, and she said you know, she had to get permission from the UFC to go and do that fight, uh, but that, hey, if somebody, if Misha Tador, Kat Zangano got hurt and had to pull off of that card, and the UFC called up and said, we need you to fill in, um, which means we need you to not fight an Invicta that same month. We need you to come over here and do us a solid that, hey, that's what she would have to do. And that Invicta knew that that was a situation when they agreed to it. So I think that that is one of the reasons that they're kind of keeping the – going to Invicta keeps the door open between them and the UFC. Uh, but at the same time, if you even if you're thinking, hey, New Year's Eve, big, huge fight, 140 catch weight – that's a long time from now, man. A yes. lot of things could, could There's change. There's a between lot now of and variables then. involved in that situation. Uh, well, let's talk briefly before we move on uh, to round number two about Ronda Rousey. Are we buying her as being the greatest thing since sliced bread? Because, you know, to me, this, the things that I brought up about her prior to the fight are still 
you know, applicable sort of, I mean, I said that I wanted to see someone push her. I didn't think Liz Carmouche would be the person to do that, but she sure did at least in the very early going, give Rousey an opportunity to show her toughness when, uh, you know, she almost had her in the rear naked choke. Uh, but well, then let's again, not, let's not make too much of that. Right. Okay? And, you know, she, she screwed it, up and she gave her a right. back. And then again, I'm not sure that toughness was anything that we ever questioned about Rousey. We kind of knew she was tough as nails. Uh, and yet, even in the wake of this fight, we still haven't seen that much from her, you know, on her feet. She clearly wanted nothing to do with that uh, this weekend because she came out, pushed Carmouche up against the fence immediately yeah. and tried to go for a takedown. Uh, she still seems pretty one dimensional to me. If I had to nitpick, I'd say I think she might have had a handful of the trunks. Oh, here she, we go. When she here rolled Carmouche over. But hey, well, you know, just following rule number one in the, in the, <laughs> and how to win an MMA fight there. Let's, let's be honest and admit that of the last three fights that Ronda Rousey has had, you know, the two, last two in Strike Force, where she became the champ, defended the belt, and then this one in the UFC, Liz Carmouche is the weakest of those three opponents. I mean, yeah, I like Liz Carmouche. Sure, yeah. yeah, she, she, she uh, seems like an awesome person, tough fighter, uh, but. Sarah Kaufman and Misha Tate are, are both more accomplished fighters than Liz Carmouche is. So yes. those two victories, to me, are still more impressive than this one. This one happened on a bigger stage. There's a lot more pressure. It was the, you know, win this fight and get rich kind of moment. So there was a lot riding on it for her personally. But as far as just what it proved, like, athletically, I don't know that it did prove all that much. I mean, her win over Misha Tate, submitting Misha Tate means a lot more to me than submitting Liz Carmouche. I would agree with that. I mean, I just took from it that... We saw her get in a tight spot and get out of it and very much keep her composure, which I think is one of the things that's important to know about a fighter. Uh, And in terms of her being one-dimensional, my only thought is maybe that's good enough because at this point in women's MMA, you're certainly not dealing with a talent pool that is as deep as as what you have on the men's side. Uh, When I did the SureDog Roundtable this past week, somebody compared it to, you know, the, 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 the far earlier days of MMA on the men's side where you could get away with being one dimensional you know, if your one dimension was good enough. And that's something I was talking uh, at the event with uh, Greg Savage from Share Dog and uh, a couple other people. And I think it was Greg Savage who was saying that um, women's MMA is still like, you know, 10 years behind men's MMA. And it's kind of like the early days where if you were really good at one thing, that was good enough, you know, and it seems to be true, yeah. you know, we, we see Cyborg Santos, you know? I mean, her, her one thing is a little more terrifying, but <laughs> still, you know, really good at one thing, going out there and doing it. So, I mean, yeah, we do still have to see more. I think, you know, from what we have on the roster now, Sarah McMahon could be an interesting opponent down I the agree, way because, you, you know, you have an Olympic wrestler. If she has good armbar defense and she doesn't mind throwing, throwing the bungalows on the feet, then, hey, you know, probably be a little harder to, to just push against the cage and, and toss on the ground. Um, so, I mean, I do think there's stuff out there. To me, the, the big thing for the UFC is let's see you get behind this division rather than right. just this fighter. Because that's yeah. going one thing is going to help the other. You know, if you care about this division, if you're pushing it, people get interested in it. And Dana White seemed oddly surprised that people were as into this as they were and that nobody was an asshole about it, basically. Nobody <laughs> was like, hey, well, you know, you have, a, you have a vocal minority of people being like, I don't want to watch women fighting and keep these girls out of the cage. But those people... You know, when I see that uh, opinion voiced in, like, social media and stuff, it's basically like when somebody voices a racist opinion in social media. Right. Like, we're all just embarrassed for you, dude. Shut up. Yeah. And that seems to be the MMA community at large, I think, is handling this a lot more responsibly than even Dana White thought that they would. So have faith in, in their their intelligence and, and their desire to see this stuff uh, and – Get behind that division, and then you'll end up with with better contenders and more interest in in title fights. Yeah. All right, well, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, and then we'll get out of here since we've already gone a little bit long on this. This week, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me goes out to the great state of South Dakota. I found out from our friends over at Cage Potato this week that our neighbors to the east are attempting to undertake what seems like the perfectly reasonable uh, action of trying to regulate sports like boxing and kickboxing and mixed martial arts by creating an athletic commission. Yet a few South Dakota politicians, apparently because they live in the 1950s, are trying to amend that bill that is currently going through the South Dakota State Legislature by creating an athletic commission, but simultaneously banning mixed martial arts. 
and the governor of South Dakota, whose name is Dennis Doggard, which I feel is a, probably a fake name made <laughs> up, so I would have to pronounce it. He said this week that he was, quote, offended that the state would legitimize cage fighting and the bloody violence that those kind of spectacles create. And even worse than that, state representative Steve Hickey called MMA, which he refers to as MMA cage fighting, the, quote, child porn of sports. In what way? Now, see, I'm not even going to say anything except to say, are you fucking kidding me, South Dakota? Fucking kidding me? In what way is it like child porn? In that that he gets an erection when he watches it? Whoa, wow. Huh? Burn. That's right. That's all up in your face, South Dakota. (laughs) All right. My Are You Fucking Kidding Me goes out to noted novelist David Tank Abbott. And you know, I'm not even going to say my Are You Fucking Kidding Me to Tank Abbott because I don't even blame him for this. I blame King of the Cage, which is giving Tank Abbott a fight on an upcoming fight card in April. Uh, where he is going to face 43-year-old Ruben Warpath Villarreal. Uh, And about the 47-year-old Tank Abbott, the owner of King of the Cage, Terry Treblecock Jr., says, quote, Tank Abbott basically built the sport of MMA and brought it into the mainstream when he started fighting in the mid-90s. There is no true MMA fan in the world who doesn't know who Tank Abbott is, and we're thrilled that he has picked King of the Cage to resume his fighting career when he could have fought in any event in the world. Any event in the world, Chad! Yeah, well, he could have fought in slope fighting championships in Ben Folks' backyard. We know that. Okay, so the three points I want to make here. Could have fought in any event in the world. No true MMA fan in the world who doesn't know who Tank Abbott is. And Tank Abbott basically built the sport of MMA. Uh, for the one about no one who doesn't know who he is, just because we know who you are doesn't mean we like that. And about the other two, I will just say, are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Basically built the sport. Chad, in the weeks leading up to UFC 157, we heard a lot of people out there in the MMA universe saying, isn't it unfair that Leota Machida and Dan Henderson aren't the main event? It deprives us of seeing five full rounds of these two (laughs) dudes going at it. Now, after we saw three rounds of them going at it, aren't you glad you didn't have to sit through two more? Yeah, you know, the weird thing about this fight was that because... So much attention got paid to Rousey and Carmouche leading up that I didn't even think about it enough, really, I guess, to come to the conclusion of what a stinker it was going to be until about seven minutes into the fight when I was just like, oh, holy fucking shit. Of course this fight sucks. (laughs) Of course when you take Leota Machida's style and match it up with Dan Henderson's style and put it in a fucking skillet and shake it up and throw it out there. Of course it sucks. Of course it looks like this. I wish I would have known that going in because I feel like I definitely would have tempered my level of excitement because I was kind of curious to see this fight. I was, I was kind of excited for it. for it. Yeah, it seemed like an interesting style matchup. But then when we see it in practice, you're right. It just turns out that Leota Machida is going to fight as if you know Dan Henderson uh, is wielding a, a sword and he must <laughs> therefore not get close to him. Uh, and then Dan Henderson is not going to be able to do a whole lot about that except for lunge in with big overhand rights and hope for the best. Yeah. And, you know, I think we kind of saw conclusive evidence that Dan Henderson is a little bit too small and maybe a little bit too old to really take anybody down at 205. Not that he tries to do that that hard in, in, in most of his fights, but I think, you know, there 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 were some instances here where if he could, as Joe Warren might say, get his hands on Gotta him. Get your hands on him, Dan. It would have behooved him to, to punch him in the face. Throw out a takedown. And, and, you know, he did it. He, he got him down once or twice, but, but the majority of the fight was a, was a goddamn slog on the feet. And really because, you know, Dan Henderson's very one dimensional on the feet. He's got that overhand, right? The H bomb. Yeah. Don't forget about the H bomb checks in the mail, Morrow. And, uh, you know, and then he's got a left hook and that's about it. And in trying to land those punches, he's very plodding, very predictable. And, and I mean, I guess I would say that's how he is when things don't go well. Obviously, in his last few fights prior to this one, it had been a different story. But 
when you get him involved in these like lengthy even a little bit more technical battles it's like he's almost got nothing you yeah know? i think it's kind of amazing how he now has in his last two fights maybe the greatest fight i've ever seen in my entire goddamn life and then you know at least one of the worst of the last 12 months uh it's weird to, yeah. to be able to pair those things yeah. together one of the things we were talking about uh with some of the some of the other media members after the fight was how somebody was saying I think maybe it was Dave Doyle from MMA Fighting was saying how uh, that he had made some kind of comment before the fight about whether we we're going to see the old Machida and how oh shit this is kind of the old Machida or you know there's been so many different old Machidas you could kind of say the old Machida and as long as he doesn't wrestle his way to a decision you'd be right yeah. you know uh, that is the 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 Machida that we always heard was so elusive. Right. Oh, yeah, he's very elusive. That's and the, but the thing about it is, I feel like you know the line on Machida is like, oh, you know, he's so technical and and elusive. But the weird part is when he's being elusive, he has this look on his face like he's terrified. Like when, <laughs> when Dan Harrison throws that the H bomb at him and Machida avoided it, Machida always every single time had this look on his face like, oh shit, did you guys see that? <laughs> yeah, he yeah. almost got me, man. It just scampers away, going, oh fuck, oh fuck, oh fuck, oh fuck. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and the thing to me is. Afterwards, when we were kept peppering Dana White, like, okay, so is Machida really the number one contender after that? And I'll, he, I'll answer that for you, no. Well, and Dana kept saying, well, hey, he beat the number one contender, so he's the number one contender. And then the next question would be, okay, but really? Is he seriously, though? And Dana White wasn't budging on it. He kept saying, like, hey, hey, you, you beat... Be the number one contender. Ugh. You are the number one. Which, hey, I mean, that's exactly what we wanted out of him, right? To stop making these bullshit matchups, to put together a fight and say the winner of this fight uh, gets the shot and then stick to it. Uh, but I think now that we're just so conditioned to the UFC's response to this kind of stuff that even while he kept saying it over and over, we were all like, yeah, I don't believe it yet. I don't believe him now. I don't believe him today on Monday. I think if Alexander Gustafson goes out and fucking blitzes sweet and sassy, uh, whenever they the young fight, vagabond, the young vagabond. Uh, I don't think you can. I don't think you can make an argument against him getting the next title shot, because. And, and I don't think the UFC would try too hard to make that argument. And here's the thing: I honestly don't have a problem with Machida's style. And as a dude, it sounds like you're really who, into it. Who? Just, well, who's into it? I mean, uh, I would never assume to tell a professional fighter how he should fight. But one of my big things has always been winning the fight, and I think that the reason that we've seen wrestling become so popular in MMA and indeed we've seen wrestling become the victim of this backlash is because wrestling is, has proven to be really, really effective in winning a fight according to the structure and time limit and rule criteria of the unified rules. And I think the, that Machida style is the exact opposite of that. I can't think of a style that, might be less effective in winning a fight that's only 15 minutes long and that is judged by these people uh, sitting around the cage who half the time, God knows what they're watching. But judges love his bullshit, man. They love it. I mean, judges eat that shit up. I guess, but the thing about Machida is either he's really, really good and he knocks out Rashad Evans or he kicks Randy Couture in the face or he knocks out Ryan Bader or he's really, really bad. And at that, when he's really bad, I get the, I get the sense he could lose any fight, literally any fight. And it's one of the reasons that I don't want to see him as the number one contender because heaven forbid the guy should actually win the championship. Then you've got this situation where the champion at any time could go out there against any opponent and have one of these fucking downers where the decision could go to anybody. It could be a draw. The other guy might have won. Or maybe Lynn Machida won. We don't know. <laughs> well, I don't think that's, that's a real concern. I think the thing is, and I'll note that when people were talking about this after the fight, like, hey, are you, are you really sure that that performance gets him another shot at John Jones? Nobody was even entertaining the idea that John Jones won't still be the champion after he fights Chel Sonnen. Right. That wasn't even, even fucking discussed. Uh, people were just talking about it as if John Jones had no other fight booked. Uh, the problem is, when you've already fought John Jones once, and as you like to say, Chad, he has dumped you on your face like a bag of dirty laundry, you got to do something... To show us that, hey, the next one's going to be different. That you know, yet you have a little something more for him the next time in order to get people interested in a rematch. That was the exact opposite of that. What right. what Leonardo Machida did against Dan Henderson. That did not make anybody more interested in a rematch. So I think if 
if uh, Alexander Gustafson goes out there and beats the holy hell out of sweet sassy Musasi, the dream catcher, <laughs> the dream catcher, the young vagabond, then I don't. Th- I think that there will be an outcry to see him get the shot instead. If he does not look super impressive or somehow loses uh, to Musasi, which I don't see happening. And I think that Dana White was already more entertaining this idea that that's when you try to make the John Jones Anderson Silva super fight, uh, because man, doing if John Jones goes from beating up a hapless Chael Sonnen to then rebeating up a, a Leona Machida who's got nothing new for him, you you got to feel bad for John Jones at that point because you got to start supplying the dude with some contenders. Yeah, either that or he needs to think about going upstairs. Oh, here we go. Heavyweight division. Here we go. Uh, well, let's. We, you know, we don't have a ton of time left here, but let's briefly talk about Dan Henderson. You know, he came into this fight, obviously not the fight that anybody wanted to see from him, but he had a ton of hype behind him because he put together the streak, because he beat Fedor, because he had the awesome fight against Shogun Hua uh, pretty recently. It seems to me that now the no-brainer fight is him against Rashad Evans, but does he maintain? any of that momentum coming out of this? You know, I think Henderson has this weird kind of appeal for fans where I don't think fans are going to blame him for this fight, for one thing. I think they're going to be like, ah, damn, Machida's running away from you, man. Uh, Ugh, God. The same, he's easy to like, but he had yeah. nothing for Machida. But really. the same way that Dan gets a pass on the TRT stuff, I feel like he's mostly going to get a pass on this and that he's going to you know show up for the next one and, and do his regular laconic badass thing and and people are going to eat it up uh i think at this point though uh since he's not going to get a title shot anytime soon and since he is 42 what we're looking at now with dan henderson is you know just a badass dude who wants to go out there and put on some fun fights before the ride is over yeah also known as historically the most depressing part of any mma fighter's career hey sometimes it's fun man sometimes it's fun and it will be fun i like dan henderson he's very easy to like but in fights like this it, it it seems like all of all of his faults that we've been able to ignore for the last three four years suddenly come like screaming back to the surface. Uh, and give, give him James Tony with a dude. <laughs> there's an idea. Uh, and the other thing, Minchita kept throwing that front kick in this fight. I think because he figured that it was very successful against forty year olds. He'd he'd had success with it in the past, fighting just very old men with the front kick. Anyway, that's probably going to do it for our discussion of uh, Machida versus Henderson in round number two. We will be right back with round number three. fighters last Wednesday with the promise of many more to come and uh, it wasn't to me the fact that the cuts happened and I think this was most people's response it wasn't the fact that the cuts happened but it was some of the dudes that they cut because obviously John Fitch uh, garnered the lion's share of the outrage and ensuing headlines but there was a lot of dudes on this list that I feel like were you know well maybe defensible in some way surprising. I mean, I thought it was surprising that they cut guys like Paul Sass, Jacob Volkman, you know, Ulysses Gomez, who's a flyweight, and she had a for cutting flyweights. We're only going to have... We're, Ain't nobody safe. Yeah, nobody Protect safe. your neck, son. You know, uh, Mike Russo got cut. Vladimir Matyushenko got cut. Jay Haran got cut. Shopping Shea, heads. Shea Mills got cut. George Santiago got cut. Josh Grisby, who up until... Maybe the one of the most precipitous falls we've ever seen in the sport was a big time featherweight uh, prospect. But obviously, as I mentioned, John Fitch, the guy who uh, was the most high profile and obviously the worst received cut. Um, So I guess we should open this up with a general discussion. What in the hell's going on? Yeah, just uh, and uh, here's where we get into a weird situation because we have criticized the UFC for too many events, right? Yes. And now they say technically we are the assholes. Yeah, we're the assholes here. Now they say, look. We don't have enough events to give fights to all these fighters unless you want to start turning in, you know, 18 fight cards at some of these events. And God, no, we don't want that. We're going to be there for seven hours. Right. Uh, I mean, you say that as a joke, but not really anyone's fault except for the UFC having built this incredibly bloated roster over 2012. Yeah. And the problem is that when you 
sign I up. I mean, this was going to happen. Yeah. They had to cut these guys eventually. And they say they're going to cut 100 more. 100 more. 100 more guys. And that's what happens when you have 500 dudes under contract, man. You just can't carry them all. Yeah, and when you're trying – I mean, through all this, you're telling me you're, you're starting up the women's 135-pound, and now you're going to start talking about 115-pounders? No, no, don't, don't add a new weight class if you're 100 fighters over. Jesus Christ. I, the question that I keep coming back to with this is, you know, because some of these cuts, guys are going to get cut sometimes, and, and that's just the way the UFC works. Uh, it is kind of a bullshit thing where the UFC has these contracts where they basically tell you, hey, sign this deal that, uh, you know, binds you to us, uh, really limits what you can do and what you'll get in exchange for doing it. But if at any point we decide the contract is no longer worth it for us, we tear that motherfucker up. Right. And uh, it's not like you get paid the rest of that money. No. These are non-guaranteed contracts. No. You're, you're off. There goes your, your your health insurance. There you are. You know, you're, you're just out. Uh, and Dana White should think about that before he starts making too many comparisons to other sports. Because when he's like, hey, the, the Packers cut Charles Woodson. Yeah, he's going to be all right. Yes. You know, it's not the same kind of thing where uh, he just gets shown the door with, with no no recompense there. So it's not like other major pro sports. And also the thing with John Fitch was people were saying, oh, well, he's too expensive. Damn it, if seven years in the organization and having fought for a title and you're making 66 grand to show and another 66 grand to win, if after everything he's done to get to that point, if that's considered way too much money for him to be viable, then every aspiring pro fighter quit right now and fill out that University of Phoenix application. Because that- well, no, 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 don't do that. <laughs> do not, as a former instructor at the University of Phoenix, allow me to say, unless they plan to advertise on our podcast, do not. Send them your money under any <laughs> circumstances. But the thing is, what is this going to do to the fighters who are trying to stay or stay employed, stick around? You know, I think it's going to be different on different guys. But I think if you're trying to get guys to go out there and lay it all on the line and give you these exciting fights, maybe telling them that you're just going to start slicing off dudes who lose, maybe that's not the best way to get those kind of performances out of them. Yeah, at the same time, though, I mean, I think there is this sense that Fitch got cut because everyone thought he was a boring fighter. And I don't know how much blood can be on the hands of the millions and millions of Twitter users who consistently bitched about John Fitch's performances. And then as soon as he got cut, were suddenly like, oh, the humanity. I can't believe you cut John Fitch. He's never had more fans in his life. There was a little bit too much irony in that regard for this humble narrator. But, you know, in the wake of, say, the Dennis Bermudez-Matt Grice fight from this weekend, which was a slugfest and awesome and everybody loved it, and then the UFC comes out and says, hey, man, you don't want to get cut. Fight like Matt Grice did. Uh, So, there, I mean, you ask, is this really going to yield more exciting performances? Like, they are actively at work trying to... Uh, encourage people to be more exciting by saying you will keep your job if you are exciting win or lose and but you there are a million moral questions involved in that yeah but it's, also you you can't do that by yourself you know because sure, yeah. look look at the brendan schaub lavar big johnson uh fight uh big my man big he wanted to go out there and have one of those kind of fights he looked like he wanted to go out there and, and throw them bungalows and do a little matt grice stuff right brendan schaub wasn't having it yeah. Brendan Schaub's going to wait for you to throw your, your big haymaker, and then he's just going to drop under it and take you down and hold you there. You know, because he felt like he needed to win. He'd been knocked out twice in a row. He felt like he couldn't lose, uh, you know, three in a row after all that. And he was probably right. He definitely needed to win that fight. So he's going to go out there and do it by any means necessary, even if it means getting booed. Uh, see, and so it's that kind of thing where he feels that pressure, so he turns in a boring fight. LeVar Johnson trying to go out there and put on one of those exciting, you know, heavyweight rock'em sock'em robots kind of fights and but he needs somebody willing to do that with him right because obviously he's not going to stuff a takedown right. i mean forget that so it's it doesn't just play the same for everybody no yeah and i continue to hold that the the promoter in a perfect world the promoter would not be responsible for encouraging its athletes to fight in any particular way it just it's too unseemly for me it feels dirty i know I think there is a difference between saying we want to see stand-up fights and we want to see exciting fights. Right, as we well witnessed this past weekend, a crappy stand-up fight. Yeah, maybe it's the worst thing in the world. I don't know. It's one of them. It's one of the worst. Yeah, things then they're in the not world. even really coming into contact very often. At least at the wrestling, then you know, 
you, you can tell that they're getting some of each other's sweat on there. So that's something, right? Yeah, people always complain about guys like John Fitch and Ben Askren, but the truth is if you take somebody down and maintain dominant position on them for 15 or 25 minutes, you have, in my book anyway, successfully dominated the fight a hell of a lot more than, say, what Leota Machida did this yeah. past weekend. Well, I think, you know, you mentioned this stuff about how fans complained about John Fitch for years and then complained as soon as he was gone. I think what that tells us is that just because fans complain about a guy's fighting style, doesn't that mean that they feel like he shouldn't be allowed to do it? Right. <laughs> you know, and that's the thing when it comes to, like, complaining about the wrestlers and that, hey, they, I, you hear every once in a while there gets to be this panic over wrestlers are ruining the sport. You know, wrestlers are coming in there, just taking guys down, holding them against the fence, that kind of stuff. The thing that stops wrestlers from ruining the sport shouldn't be that we don't let them play. Right. You know, that, that just can't be it. And I think that that's kind of what fans were reacting to, that, hey, we didn't like the way John Fitch went about his fight some of the time, but damn it, we respect his right to do it. You know, we don't, we don't say you fire the guy and just kind of, you know, shuttle him off into the, the attic somewhere uh, just because you don't like the way he goes about it. No, you let him go about it that way, and then you call him a pussy on Twitter. That's what MMA fans do, right? <laughs> Well, and what what I guess, in your opinion, is the is the the base motivating factor behind cutting Fitch? Obviously, we talked about the the economics of it. We could talk about the fact that that he's had the title shot and and, and lost, and it didn't seem like he was going to beat George St. Pierre anytime soon, and yet is still a a really good yeah, contender. Still knock off some contenders in the welterweight division, and and may have really become more of an obstacle than yeah. anything else. Uh, he's always had a, a troubled history with the UFC, I guess, dating back to, to that really awkward day when they fired him because he didn't want to, he took the, the really revolutionary stance of not wanting to sign over his, his, the rights to his image, I think for life. Yeah. And, uh, they fired him one day and then Lorenzo Fertitta flew out to California and, and re-signed him the next day or some goddamn thing like that. So what, I mean, what's this about? Like, why, why John Fitch when there are just as many guys who probably get paid somewhat comparable amounts who you would think, you know, not necessarily the third best fighter in their weight class of all time and therefore would seem, you know, more defensible in terms of letting them go? I think it was probably a combination of a lot of those things. I think the whole, you know, the UFC's uh, falling out with him over video game rights from what, five years ago? I think that's probably the... They don't forget. Yeah, they don't. But I think that that's probably the bottom of the list of those right. explanations. I think if you want to know what's going on, obviously him knocking off contenders, and he is kind of an obstacle in the way there. I think that's part of it. But I think you look at that the UFC says, hey, we're this many guys over on the roster, so we got to get rid of some guys. And then here we've got this dude uh, who is making a pretty good chunk of change and is not really a return on that investment. Uh, plus hey, we're going to go ahead and sign a bunch of Ultimate Fighter guys at the end of this. We're all making six and six. And that's the kind of thing to me that seem, where it starts to seem like you're just outsourcing your shit to India. You know? <laughs> or, or like you're just, hey, you know, we'll, we'll hire children to sew these, uh, these purses and they'll make pennies an hour. What do we need these, these skilled laborers for anymore? That's the thing I think that is a little troubling uh, is you say, hey, this dude who has worked his way up to this point in the sport to where, you know, it's not like, the UFC gave him that money, uh, that kind of contract, out of the goodness of its heart. Yeah. You know, he had to earn that. And then when he earned it, oh, we decided you're not worth it. So we're yanking that contract out from under you after we we agreed to it. Uh, and instead, we're going to have these new guys who are willing to fight for fucking anything. You know, it's like we and we see the same thing like in media, where imagine like all these people are just like, well, all these writers who have been doing it for years and earning raises and and improving their position and their credibility, but. These college kids will write just for a fucking byline, man. Yeah. Fuck it. We can pay them as freelancers so we don't have to provide them any benefits. Yeah, everybody's an independent contractor, even though they work 50 hours a week for us. <laughs> All right, well, let's do uh, Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your Just Saying Stuff? You know, I'm just saying that we were, were talking about the you know Brendan Schaub and how he chose to go about uh, earning a win there. I'm just saying that... He is right to think that if LeVar Johnson is weak on the ground, LeVar Big Johnson, and if, if you absolutely need a win, then you go out there, you get it by any means necessary, you, you take the booze, and you go home with it. 
I'm just saying that when Joe Silva and Sean Shelby are sitting around talking with Dana White after this fight, nobody is saying anything about you that is A, nice, and B, doesn't include a lot of expletives. <laughs> just saying, man. I'm just saying, with apologies, I suppose, to Ronda Rousey and Liz Carmouche, that the most badass thing that I saw in the cage this weekend was high school woodshop teacher Kenny Robinson going out and getting his first UFC win by submitting Brock Jardine with some catch wrestling shit that he totally made up himself while he was in college. And then, after it was over, pocketing $50,000 for submission of the night, which I have to assume is at least a year's salary at whatever high school that he teaches woodshop at, on Monday morning, going back to school and teaching his classes. We're recording this podcast on Monday afternoon somewhere, wherever he lives. Kenny Robinson is probably cleaning up the wood shop and getting ready to go home. That is badass. I'm just saying. 50 grand buys a lot of wood varnish. Yes, it does. Well, that's going to do it this week for the co-main event podcast. We'll be back again next week, I assume, breaking down all the ins and outs of this weekend's UFC on Fuel show from Japan. But until then, I'm Chad Dunnis from ESPN.com. That's Ben Folks from MMA Junkie and USA Today. And that is the show. We're done. We're through. We're out. The second most badass thing that I saw this week.